come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome listeners to bonus episode number 22 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So in this episode here for you, I actually got to get around Christmas time, so this has been a long time coming for me to finish everything, but I got a bunch of physical copies of some stuff that Scandal Coactive is bringing out for Full Moon Features. I'm not really sure how those kind of interconnect like that, so I do apologize, but I was able to get and end up being three discs and then a box set. So I'm going to start this off with the two shorts that I got to watch, which are Scream of the Blind Dead and The Seduction of Rose Parish. And then I got to watch a sleazy Gialli from Jess Franco called Voodoo Passion. And then I delved into the Eurocine Volume 1 box set. This is going to contain Angel of Death, a.k.a. Commando Megala, Downtown Heat, Night of the Eagles, The Panther Squad, Countdown to Esmeralda Bay. This also goes by Esmeralda Bay and other places that I've seen. And then the last movie I'm going to be covering here is going to be Maniac Killer. So I don't think I have anything else that I need to get to for here in this intro. So what I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Open your eyes. It's time for you to wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. So, this is going to be the first one I review here from this full moon haul, and that's going to be Scream of the Blind Dead. This is from 2021, written and directed by Chris Alexander, stars Ali Chappell, Stephanie DeLorme, and Thea Munster. This is a short horror film that is from Canada, 
currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say about like a two to, or I mean even a one and a half star. The ratings are all over the board over there, but the synopsis is Virginia wanders a deserted haunted landscape and wakes up the ghost of an ancient and bloodthirsty blind female knight. As the wraith relentlessly pursues her prey, the truth about Virginia's dark past is revealed. So this is the one that came from Full Moon. So I'm actually going to read the back here. So this is from director Alexander comes Scream of the Blind Dead. A surreal experimental horror head trip inspired by the iconic Spanish Blind Dead films created by director Armando de Osorio. Probably mispronounce that. Taking the first half hour of 1972's Tombs of the Blind Dead and blurring into a psychosexual fever dream, the film follows a journey of Virginia, who is also in Necropolis Legion, wanders a deserted, haunted landscape, and accidentally wakes up the ghost of an ancient, bloodthirsty, blind female knight that is Munster portrayed by who she's in, Parasite Lady, Girl with the Straight Razor. As the Wraith relentlessly pursues her prey, the truth about Virginia's dark past is revealed. Heavily influenced by European exploitation underground cinema, Scream of the Blind Dead is intended as a stylistic, thematic impression of D. Osorio's work and features chilling narration from the original Tombs of the Blind Dead and Attack of the Blind Dead star Lone Fleming. So now some special features on here is a director's commentary, which I did listen to. There is Night Chill Burial Ground Video, which is a band, and then they're doing like a themed music video with this movie here. There's some well werewolfery video with Thea Munster, and this is kind of an interesting instrument that's also part of that other one. There's also official trailer and then some Delirium Films trailer, as Delirium is the film production company for Alexander. So now that I said that, this is a short that I got the chance to check out, thanks to Laura from Scandal Coactive. The title caught my attention as my father had picked up the VHS of Tombs of the Blind Den and its sequel. My sister and I would watch both regularly. Now that I knew that this wasn't part of the series before watching it, but was inspired, so that made me curious to see what we'd get here. So then to kind of give a little bit more in-depth stuff here is... We start with Betty, portrayed by Chapel. She's fleeing from something through a field. We see that this is a blind knight, portrayed by Munster, who looks like a knight's templar that has been, like, burned... So that's what we get from the synopsis. Then we have Virginia waking up on the train. She gets off and goes exploring nearby ruins. There is a church as well as an archive below. During her search, she awakens the blind knight and gives chase. We see that this could be just representation of her guilt for what she did with a former lover and something else within the church of these ruins. So this is a short that runs 40 minutes long. I do have an issue here that I'll get back to, but I like that this is... Without even looking it up, I knew that Alexander was actually a big fan of the Tombs of the Blind Dead films. Our two lead characters are named for the two women characters in the original. There's also an aspect here because Virginia jumped from the train in the older movie. She kissed Betty and she's upset with her friend, doesn't seem to have the same feelings. Things are different here while still being the same theme. Before I delve more into that, the issue I want to brought up is that this is so close to being a feature. I think this would have helped by going just a bit farther to get there. I was confused, so a bit more in the beginning would help to shore that up. This isn't our house short. There are things here with surrealism and dreams. We are explaining things without dialogue. That's all good. I just think explaining Betty and why we started there is a bit more set up with Virginia, and I think overall this works better. 
then let's get into something that is underneath the surface here. If you've seen the original, then you know Virginia is in love with Betty. This love caused her to jump from the train and check out the ruins. We then get a variation on that where a train is stopped, but there's no one around, so Virginia investigates the ruins. Now, this, we see a similar flashback to Virginia with her lover. This lover is portrayed by Munster as well. Virginia also does an act in the church that would be considered blasphemous. I get the idea that this is a dream. Virginia feels guilty about her feelings and engaging in lesbianism, and this is an interesting message to explore. Sticking with the surreal feel, this is well made. The cinematography is good to capture the vibe. This all could be a dream. I like the look of the Blind Knight. I thought this was played by a woman, and I had to confirm with the cast list. It looks like the original take, which is good. There is a bit of blood and effects here. They are fine. I do like the soundtrack was creepy to help build the good atmosphere. An issue that I'll bring up is that this should be extended to a feature length, in my opinion, but that's just mine. All that's left in is the acting. Chapel is fine in a limited role. Delorme was good as well. She is attractive. And something that was actually brought up in the director's commentary, she does look like she's European, which honestly kind of fits where this is being inspired from. What she needs to do to investigate, we do see her topless. That's something that you're interested in. I also will credit Munster as both the blind knight and the lover. It's a, it is her performance that made everything fall into line for me, at least for the second part of the story, which I appreciate. I've also now given this a second watch, as I was saying, with the director's commentary. He had interesting insight about the locations that were selected. This is all done outside of Toronto, where they have large grassy areas. The ruins are also an old mill or something along those lines. It doesn't necessarily fit with Spain, which inspired this, but it works for me. I also like hearing more about behind-the-scenes things. I've helped make shorts and feature films in the past, so it's fun to kind of learn about some of that stuff. In conclusion, this is a solid short. I love the writer-director Alexander being inspired by movies I loved growing up as well. Doing an art house surreal take was good. I think that this is well made from the cinematography to the soundtrack. A major gripe is that this is a short and not adding just a bit more to make this a feature since that would supply the missing pieces. With how it is, it's a bit pretentious, but what they do and the message conveying, I still enjoyed my time with it. I'd recommend this to the horror art house crowd who likes surreal things. So my rating here for Scream of the Blind Dead is going to be a 6 out of 10. And I believe this should be streaming on some place. I know you can rent or buy it on Prime Video from what I'm looking at here directly in front of me for $3.99. It is a short, so it might be a bit pricey. But I wouldn't be shocked if this is also available through Full Moon because that's where they have the DVD copy that I have now as well. Looks like something out of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Come on, I'll show you around. I'm so glad you've come home from LA. Whatever the reason. Even the crazy breakup with my boyfriend. This house was built by the parishes and it was always meant to belong to us. Nobody wanted to live here. Why? It's got ghosts. As if I've always been here. Holy. 
And another short that came along that I got to watch is The Seduction of Rose Parish. This is from 2021, written and directed by Charles Band. This stars Kelly Connor, Justin Gerhard, and Lily Knight. This is a short horror mystery romance that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say about a two-star over there. With the synopsis being, a young woman recovering from a messy breakup is given her great-great-grandparents' house by her aunt. Inside, a seductive, ghostly presence from her past awaits her. So this is a short film that I got the chance to see on DVD thanks to Laura from Scandal Coactive. I'll be honest... When I requested the screener copy, I didn't realize this was a short. It wasn't until looking it up ahead of time that I figured it out. See, this was written and directed by Charlie Band. Also intrigued me as I grew up with Full Moon Features, and I was a fan, so I was kind of curious as to what we would be getting here for this one. So let me read the back really quick. Full Moon returns in a moody, lush, erotic, supernatural, romantic thrillers from its 90s video store glory days with The Seduction of Rose Parish, a stylish and sensual mystery for adults. Reeling from a bad breakup, Rose leaves L.A. and moves into her ancestral home, a massive estate filled with ornate antiques, rooms upon rooms, and things that go bump in the night. Suddenly, Rose begins hearing voices and seeing strange visions, and soon she realizes that she's not alone. The ghost of a long-dead man walks the corridors, longing for Rose and ushering into her into a world of forbidden love and a spectral sensuality. Directed by the iconic band and made in the vein of classic band gothic fantasy films like Meridian, The Seduction of Rose Parrish is a sexy chiller you don't want to miss. So this one does have the official trailer for this as well as some other full moon trailers that we got here. This runs about 32 minutes from what I remember as well. So... The synopsis in the back gave a good recap. Rose Parrish, portrayed by Connor, is a young woman who has been living in Los Angeles when she went through a breakup. Her aunt is Savannah, portrayed by Knight, who has been taking care of this house. This place was built by their family, and she wants it to stay that way where somebody in the family is living there. Rose is given the history about how Thomas Parrish, portrayed by Gearhart, built the house. Tragedy struck, though, when his wife passed away during childbirth, with the baby also dying. He didn't live too much longer other than that. Rose inquires as to why no one lives here to where her aunt tells her that there are ghosts. Our lead did notice something as she moved in. We got a point of view shot being this like ghostly presence from the attic watching from above as it kind of moved out of the house and just kind of hovered over top. Now from the first night that Rose is staying there, she's uncomfortable. She feels someone is watching her. The mirrors seem to be a portal to the other side. Rose doesn't feel threatened physically by the entity. She is aroused though by the sight of them. What makes this odd though is this is her ancestor. Rose is confused by her own life and must decide what to do about the ghosts living in this new home. So that's why I leave my recap direction to the story. Where I want to start is that this is an interesting short to come from Ban. I read somewhere that this was filmed in the house that Full Moon bought in Ohio. It seemed like it wanted to film something in it before they renovated. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I can see that. I love the setting and the character that came with this place. There is a modern gothic feel that can be difficult to capture when you're in the United States. Then to add to this, the ghost isn't the villain here. Then, to delve deeper into this one, there isn't much to the story. I'm not entirely sure what the point of it is, to be honest. That's partly why I feel like Ban just wanted to produce something in this location due to how good it looks. We know that Rose just went through a tough breakup, so she needs to heal emotionally. Thomas is attracted to her. Part of this is her life force, but what is odd is that she's related to him directly. I don't hate the incest angle, and Thomas being a spirit does make it less weird. I'd also get vibes here of like Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches or even stuff with like Rose Red when you're involved in the supernatural at Blur's Lines. 
There is a problem that I have with the story that I've alluded to. I'm not sure what the purpose of it is. Rose is broken and needs fixing. Thomas is as well and been haunting the house. Rose is freaked out by him but doesn't know what he wants. There's a sexual tension that they just give into. Aunt Savannah shows up to what seems like to interrupt. Now, this runs just over 30 minutes, so there isn't much more explained, and it feels incomplete to me. So that's all I'm going to do for the story, so let's finish out with filmmaking. I'll go over to the acting performances. First, I thought that Connor and Gearhard were good with their look. We need the we see the former nude, which isn't bad. There isn't much to their performances. They just kind of capture that sexual tension needed. I'm not fully sure if I would call this a seduction of our character here, though. Knight is solid as his aunt, who seems like a good guiding force. The cinematography was also good. They captured the charm of this place. There is CGI that both works and doesn't. I'm not shocked knowing this is full moon. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, I think this is a well-made short. The problem is that I just don't know what the purpose is. The setting is great. I love the old house that it's used. I'd say that the performances of Connor and Gearhart are solid. They bring their characters to life. I'd even say that the things that they do with the effects are fine. I'll also come it comes with its issues. There isn't much of a story here to tell. I'd say if you're interested to give this a watch, and I also don't think you're missing much here. This doesn't necessarily even fit most of what you get from Full Moon, so that has some novelty value there. So this one, if you'd like to check out, is available on the Roku channel. You can also rent it on Prime Video, it looks like for $5.99. I don't know if I would do that. And like I said, there is a DVD out there as well, and I realize I haven't given this. My rating of The Seduction of Rose Parish is going to be a 4 out of 10. Der Ruf der blonden Göttin. Zombies sind lebende Leichname. Mr. House, glauben Sie wirklich, dass es die gibt? Ich bin sicher, dass es sie gibt. Ab und an begegnet man ihnen. Ich würde mir gerne mal so einen Zombie aus der Nähe betrachten. Könnten Sie das nicht arrangieren? Eine Frau glaubt, eine Mörderin zu sein. Doch sie kann nicht beweisen, dass sie getötet hat. Sie das nicht. Mr. House hat allen verboten, etwas aus der Vitrine zu holen. Hören Sie! Und besonders das da! Susan! Susan! Ah! 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 
Nein, tu das nicht. Wir müssen die Götter um Vergebung bitten. Und das können wir nur durch ein Menschenopfer. Der Ruf der blonden Göttin. For another one I got from this full moon haul is Voodoo Passion. This goes by the original title of Call of the Blonde Goddess or Der Ruf der Blonden Gottin. But this is from Jesus Franco. This is written by Erwin C. Dietrich. And then Franco also did some uncredited work on the screenplay. This stars Vicky Adams, Ada Toller, and Kareen Gambier, while also featuring Jack Taylor, Vitor Mendez, Lee Fry, Aiden Govia, Sandra Denlicker, Norbert Langer, and Joachim Rosa. This is an adventure crime drama horror thriller that is from Switzerland, currently sitting on a 4.4 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with a snobs bean. Susan comes to Haiti to be with her husband. His naked sister asks her if she's ever made love to a woman. Susan dreams vividly of nudity, voodoo rituals, and killing. So this one they sent me a Blu-ray copy of. And just kind of read some of the stuff that's in this in the back. Eurosleaze Maverick, Jess Franco, and producer Erwin C. Dietrich team up again for Voodoo Passion, a.k.a. Call of the Blonde Goddess and Porno Shock, a voyeuristic, sex-soaked thriller that veers wildly between reality and fantasy. Ada Toller stars as Susan, who arrives in Haiti to live with her new husband, Jack, Franco regular Jack Taylor, who has apparently unhealthy, possibly incestuous relationship with his sister, Olga. Lost in a fever dream of a sexual delirium, Susan fi- suddenly finds herself in a weird world of black magic, clandestine couplings, and bloody voodoo rituals, all the while her possibly sinister housekeeper, Muriel Montose, looks on lustfully. More coherent than many of Franco's dream state erotic horror films, Voodoo Passion also stars Eurocult superstars Gambier and features a groovy score by Walter Baumgartner, Franco's Jack the Ripper. This film is presented fully uncut and remastered in stunning HD from Dietrich's original negative. So some special features here as well. We have Franco, Bloody Franco, an audio interview with Jess Franco. This is kind of an interesting thing to listen to just because he kind of goes into what he likes and what he doesn't like and just kind of talks about some of his contemporaries. There's a rare photo slideshow, a German trailer, and Franco Vintage trailer reel. So I did watch all of those as well. It's kind of some fun stuff to take in. So this is a movie that I don't know if I had known about before getting the Blu-ray screener copy here. What I saw was that this was a Franco film. I was intrigued. I've seen movies from him, and I've read, heard about countless others. I was intrigued to see what we'd get here, as this is credited as a Gialli. Other than that, I went in blind. So then to get in the movie itself, we start on the beach where we have some men playing bongo drums, and there are topless women dancing. Some of this movie will give you throughout is about how important voodoo is in Haiti. This also feels like filler. We are shifted over to a ship arriving. Waiting by a car is NS, portrayed by Adams, and... She is also the housekeeper for Jack House, portrayed by Taylor, who is the ambassador. Now, his wife, Susan, gets off the ship. The camera shows us natives, and I get the idea that there's some fear that she, you know, being white and that they are not. Inez is also white, but we've learned that she is from this area and has mixed racial parents. Now, Susan is brought home to unpack and freshen up. She goes into her room to find her husband's sister, Olga, portrayed by Gambier, nude in bed. 
This is where she quest- she asks a question of her sister-in-law from the synopsis. Soon after, Susan visits her husband at the embassy, and we get to meet three men with him. One of them is Dr. Pierre Bari, portrayed by Mendez, who is a psychiatrist. Jack is happy to see his wife and drives her home. It is through their conversations that Susan is intrigued by voodoo, and her husband has knowledge that he shares. It is also at once that Susan has dreams from the synopsis. This is taking her to see a ritual led by NS. Susan also believes that she seduces men that she met with her husband and kills them. She's convinced that she did them, but there are no murders occurred according to Jack and Pierre. The deeper she gets into these dreams, the more her sanity comes into question as secrets are revealed. So that's all I'll leave my recap introduction of the characters. What I want to start is that this should be labeled as adult first. This is a softcore porn. Almost every scene with Toller and Gambier features them nude. They get more explicit as this goes on. Adams also appears nude quite a bit after the opening act. I didn't mind seeing these women that way. After all, they're beautiful, but it gets uncomfortable after a while. Now that I have that out of the way, a problem that I have here is that the nudity seems more important than the story. There is a murder mystery here, but that doesn't seem like the focal. This is more interested in having sex scenes between Susan and Jack or having Olga listen to them and pleasuring herself. Anything big here is we have nude women dancing in a realistic format, ritualistic format, or having like Susan investigate in a nightgown that hides nothing. If you're looking for a Swiss giallo, it is light on those elements of mystery and investigation, unfortunately. Now that out of the way, we do have murders, or at least Susan thinks that there are. She isn't sure what is real and what's a dream. She does add to a surreal feel. We also don't necessarily know if what she is giving over to the sexual desires either. I do think that Franco does well. I should credit Towler because she doesn't know if she's doing these things, which is messing with her head. She plays as well and credit her for being as nude as much as she is. Let's go to the rest of the cast. Adams is gorgeous. Gambier is easy on the eyes as well. We see both nude throughout. Taylor is good as he seems like this loving husband who works too much. There was something off about him. The same for Mendez. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast fit for what was needed. Franco was able to find people who were willing, once again, to be nude on camera, showing full frontal, if that's what you're seeking, both men and women. All that's left is filmmaking. Now, I do think this has too much filler. We do get to see Portugal and how beautiful it is, subbing in for Haiti. Cinematography is good for what was captured. The framing feels like something you'd get from a softcore porn, so there, I wasn't shocked there. I will credit that surreal feel of whether what we're seeing are dreams or reality. The dust are off screen. I get why, though, since we're exploring whether Susan is going crazy, the soundtrack fit for what was supposed to take place in that atmosphere as well. In conclusion, this movie wasn't what I was expecting. This is more of an adult film than a giallo. That falls on me, though, not the movie that Franco was making. I do think the casting was good. The women are beautiful. This does capture the atmosphere they wanted with voodoo and whether Susan is killing these people or is it just dreams. That works in its favor. This doesn't work for me overall. If you want to see a softcore film with beautiful women and nudity from almost everyone, I'd give this a watch. I'd also recommend this to fans of Franco. So my rating here for Voodoo Passion is a 5 out of 10. This is another one that if you'd like to watch, I'm assuming you can get it from Full Moon as well as you can get a Blu-ray copy like the one that I have. South America today. Playground of the rich. Hiding place of the notorious. He must be positively identified. Fingerprints. Anything. We need proof. Hunted for four decades for his murderous crimes. We need someone can testify that this man is Bengali. Every day he remains at large brings him closer to his goal. For these hand-picked commandos, there is no turning back. 
His secret is safe no longer. Where's Mangler? They call him the Angel of Death. Angel of Death. He must be destroyed. Mangler can't die. He's a myth. He lives forever. Angel of Death. A mission of vengeance. The name of humanity. And the next movie I'm going to be discussing that I got from this full moon haul is Angel of Death, or the original title of Commando Magnola. So this is from 1985. It was directed by Andrea Bianchi, but then this was actually started by Jesus Franco, and then he left the project. Now this is written by Georges Friedland, Marius Lesseur, and Franco. This stars Christopher Mitchum, Suzanne Andrews, and Fernando Rey, while also featuring Howard Vernon, Jack Taylor, Antonio Mayans, Shirley Knight, and Vernon being Mangala, even though they are, she said his name again, so just kind of realized that as I was looking through that there. So this one is an action crime adventure drama thriller that is from France, currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a Jewish commando unit hunting Nazi war criminals tracks down the infamous Dr. Mengele in the jungle and find that he is torturing nubial young virgins and performing horrible medical experiments on the locals. They repair to battle their way past Mengele's hordes of fanatic Nazi bodyguards to get him. So here's going to be kind of reading the back here. The blood of millions is on his hands. From the fevered mind of the notorious Franco, who is being credited here for barbed wire dolls, comes 1987's Angel of Death, a.k.a. Commando Magnola, a deranged freefall into Nazi exploitation that takes its cues from the blockbuster 1978 shocker The Boys from Brazil and delivers the sort of delirium that fans of French genre film studio Eurocine hunger for. When an attractive pair of young Nazi hunters exploring Uruguay accidentally stumble upon the lair of maniacal war criminal Dr. Joseph Mengele, they immediately live to regret it. There, deep in the sweltering jungles, Mengele has continued his hideous human experiments torturing, murdering, and mutilating nubial virgins in the name of creating some sort of master race. Soon, mercenaries, monstrosities, femme fatales, and vengeful concentration crap survivors face off with bullets and bodies flying everywhere and Mengele holding... Cretinous Court. Co-directed by Franco and completed by Italian trash movie maverick Bianchi, who is being credited for Burial Ground Nights of Terror, the pair signed off on the film as Frank Drew White, apparently too nervous to take credit for making this truly deaf piece of unsavory exploitation. Angel of Death is a fast-paced slice of vintage Eurocine mayhem with an international cast that includes Franco regulars Jack Taylor Antonio Mayans, Fernando Ray, and Howard Vernon, along with Robert Mitchum's son Christopher and Shirley Knight from Franco's equally insane White Cannibal Queen, which I have seen that. Jump into the jungle with Jess and get ready for some prime cinematic insanity. Get ready for Angel of Death, presented here in a beautiful uncut transfer called From the Best Available Material. So now that I've read that, this is a movie that I didn't hear about until getting this box set for review from full moon it is interesting that along with this i got borderline softcore porn that was directed by franco and seeing that this one he started directing i thought this would be more graphic without playing my hand too much let me get into this movie then so we start this off with a vehicle leaving a compound and a car tailing them in one car is aaron horner portrayed by taylor he is a nazi hunter that they believe that this guy they're following is mengala he is working with ome felsberg 
who is Ray, who is back in Europe, and that would be Taylor. There is a showdown outside of town, leaving the guy dead. It doesn't look like he is who they thought they were after, though. That is when we meet Mark Logan, portrayed by Mayans, who is hanging out with his girlfriend, Rachel, portrayed by Annick Lane. They're watching on television a program about the Nazis and that they are taking refuge in South America. It also refers to the murder that we started this off with as well, and it ends with that they're still hunting for Mengele, and that's ongoing. There is a break, though, when Rachel gets a call from a former co-worker of hers, of Ava, portrayed by Andrews. She wants to meet her former friend. The first time, she says that she believes the man she is living with is Mengele, but going by the name of Carl Herman. This sparks interest to check out the compound from Mark. Rachel is killed in the process. He starts to recruit people around him to try to see if they can take this place down, but they relay what they believe to Ome and Aaron. They need proof, though. I will say that within this compound, we get to see some of the stuff. Joseph's right hand is Wolfgang von Backe, portrayed by Christopher Mitchum. There are some terrible things that are being done here. Joseph is aided there by Gertrude, portrayed by Knight. This group from the village is up against a force stronger than what they're expecting as they start to try to raise the Fourth Reich. So that's something my recap introduction. Where I want to start is that with the synopsis and the concept are much better than what we get here. It is odd since Franco films I've seen in the past tend to be more surreal, full of nudity or violence. This one doesn't get as much of any of that. There's a good idea for the basis. The problem is that I feel like from everything I've read that this was a troubled production to the point where Franco left before it was completed, having Bianchi step in. Now that I've set that up, I love the idea of these Jewish commandos looking for revenge and hunting Nazis. I believe that this is common knowledge now that Nazis fled from Germany as things got bad. A majority went to South America. Using that as a basis is good. This wouldn't be too far after the war either, being made in 85. I thought that Vernon does good as Mengele. He doesn't play it over the top. He seems like this nice older gentleman hiding a secret. Now having a compound where they are and they're trying... Training soldiers is believable. Trying to create the Fourth Reich is also not out of the realm of possibilities either. I kind of get the idea here that Mengele might have, at least this version of it, might have thought he was smarter than Hitler and had some missteps, so he's trying his own way. The problem is that this is boring. It struggles to build any tension. I will credit that they aren't afraid to kill characters, though. During the climax, which piqued my interest with seeing that, the action sequences aren't great, though. There is this guy doing karate, and they use slow motion for him. There is a guy with a crossbow, which I thought was a good touch. We have where the good guys shoot someone, and they die instantly. I could just tell that this wasn't working with the biggest budget. It is during these that it shows cinematography was fine though i don't think this is shot poorly there is a great theme that is used when things get tense it is a variation on synth wave that would be prominent in the era i did enjoy that the rest of the score fit what was needed all that's left then would be acting which should be the last of the things to look at it is interesting that i didn't know until seeing this that robert mitchum had sons one of them is in this movie as wolfgang i thought he was solid as his henchman you know this like nazi type character vernon was good as mengala there were too many limitations, but he was still solid. I thought Andrews worked as Ava. Ray is in a limited role as this mastermind of the Nazi hunters. Taylor worked as the one who's collaborating closely with him. I thought that Mayans was good as our lead. I'll also credit Lane in her limited role. The rest of the cast was fine and rounding this off for what was needed. In conclusion, this isn't a good movie. I'm not sure how much of this was budgetary if the or if the fact that Franco started this and then left before it was completed. There are good things here. I love exploring the what-if Mengele escaped to South America to form the Fourth Reich. 
This just didn't have the resources to make it fully work. It isn't a bad action film. I just think they should have went farther with either the not-exploitation or go more exploitation with some of this stuff. The acting was solid. This is just boring, unfortunately. I'd only recommend this as a curiosity for Franco or Bianchi fans or if you enjoy low-budget action movies. So my rating here for Angel of Death is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. Now, for this one, I do see it streaming on the Full Moon Prime video channel. It's also on Tubi, or you can also rent this on Prime at $3.99, or you can also buy it over there as well. Or if you want to pick up this nice, pristine Blu-ray, I would also recommend it as this part of this box set, which is the Euro Cine Volume 1. Sigue viva por poco tiempo. Ven aquí. Lástima, es muy guapa. Bah, vamos, es guapa. Es normal. Esto sí que está bien. ¿Qué estarán haciendo? Echemos un vistazo. And for my next review on this episode is going to be Downtown Heat. This goes by the original title of Ciudad Baja. This is from 1994, directed by Jesus Franco, who also co-wrote this with Michael Kentims. This stars Mike Connors, Josephine Chaplin, and Oscar Landori, while also featuring 
Craig Hill, Felipe Lemire, Lena Romay, Robert Long, Steve Parkman, David Fulton, Antonio Mayans, Victor Israel, Daniel Katz, Mir Ferry, Peggy Ann Down, Ann Novak, Noel J. Sampson, Sergey Lopez, and Angel Mora. This is an action thriller that is from Spain. Currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a... Not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say this is about a two-star movie over there. With our synopsis being, a young jazz composer turns vengeful commando against local drug mafia capos when his wife is killed at the hands of a Caribbean drug dealers. So for this one here, just to kind of read the back, we have from director Jess Franco, who did Vampiros, Lesbos, and Jack the Ripper, one of the most important and revered proprietors of international cinema and legendary French exploitation film pseudo Eurocine, which is the collection that I'm watching. They've done things like Panther Squad and Zombie Lake, comes Downtown Heat, a.k.a. Ciudad Baja. A rarely seen 1994 action thriller starring Mannix himself, Mike Connors, along with Josephine Chaplin, who was also in Franco's Jack the Ripper, and Franco's main muse, Lena Romay. It's a lurid tale of vengeful jazz musician, his murdered wife, her punk rock lesbian lover, and a gang of vigilantes set on bringing down a sadistic drug cartel, all set to a relentless jazz funk soundtrack. One of Franco's most interesting, colorful, and eccentric late-period ventures, the film was shot in 90, but not released until 94 due to legal dispute between Franco and Eurocine. Full Moon is thrilled to bring this action-packed pot boiler to disc for the very first time in North America with a striking new HD transfer remastered from the original negative. So this is the movie that I got the chance to check out as part of the Eurocine Collection Volume 1 that I have for review from Full Moon thanks to Laura from Scandal Coactive. This is another film that I didn't know much about from Franco. Interestingly, I did hear a podcast go over this, so my guess is that Mr. Parka did that. Regardless, it was intrigued to see what we'd get here as I've gotten mixed results from some of the Franco films that I've already watched up until this point. She also said there's not really much on this, D- or this Blu-ray outside of the fact that it had trailers of some of the movies that are already been featured on some of the other discs as well. So then, for this movie here, we start off with getting the opening credits with the backdrop of the city that this takes place. It's in Spain is where it's shot, but it's supposed to be South America. Something else to point out is that Franco claims this is based on a true story that he adapted into what we get. Now, we see a dead girl in a trunk. They're at the beach, and there's a nearby cliff. There's a guy preparing to get rid of the girl when another one shows up to help. While they're doing this, Alberto, who is portrayed by Lodori, and his partner Emilio, portrayed by Mayans, see this. So they interrupt, but not before the van is sent over the edge after being set on fire. Now it explodes, one of the criminals is shot, Emilio is run down by the other, and Alberto gives chase. He relays over the radio about his pursuit. This gets bubbled up to Badal, portrayed by Lemire. Now when the license plate comes back to an important person in town... He tells Alberto to stand down. He states that the criminal, he has him dead to rights, but does as he commands. Now, Bedell is on the payroll for an important diplomat with ties to the drug trade. So this doesn't sit well with Alberto. He tells Emilio's wife about what happened. Now, she is Maria, portrayed by Chaplin, about what, you know, what happened to her husband. Now, she's also a police officer. These two are going outside of the law to bring down the criminals being protected. He also reaches out to the drug enforcement officer from the United States to help. Now, there is another story here that runs concurrently. Now, Steve, portrayed by Connors, is a young jazz composer who gets tangled here. He is looking for his wife, who he tells us she was having an affair with Melissa, portrayed by Romaine. 
Now, he seeks out to find out what happened to her and is entangled with a local drug dealer. Now, we also follow Don Miguel, portrayed by Hill. He is the drug dealer that the criminals in the beginning worked for. His right hand is Chucho, portrayed by Long, who is must deal with this blunder. The only thing that Miguel enjoys more than his power and money is his daughter, and he will do anything to protect her and give her everything that she wants. So that's really my recap introduction of the characters. What I want to start is that I do enjoy the concept here. We have these three stories that get intertwined. Miguel is operating just fine in the city until one of his criminals is too blatant in handling of a dead woman. This gets Alberto on his trail. By killing his partner, that gets Maria involved. It also exposes the corruption. Now, the drug agent from the United States is also after Miguel, so that is you know, more aid there. Now, there's an element of Gialli here that Steve, who isn't a cop or law enforcement, joins the team. Having seen Angel of Death ahead of this, this reminds me of that. Taking people who don't have experience, joining to help bring down the villains, it's slightly unbelievable, though. Now, what we're getting here, though, is a classic 80s action film that is being made in the early 90s. So this was filmed in 90, and that would explain it, just missing out on the decade. It gets released in 94 because of the legal issues as to why. So there is a big action sequence to end this. I enjoyed that. Even though it's over the top, we are getting the concept as well of the police dealing with corruption in their own department, needing to overcome that to bring down the villain. It even plays with the idea that having power and money, Miguel could get away with this. The police must step outside of what they're allowed to do legally to bring him to justice. This is set in South America, so I'm not familiar with their laws there, but kidnapping a girl to flush out the drug lord doesn't seem legal anywhere. Now, despite doing good things, this feels generic and in turn boring. It takes too long to get into it. The story with Steve isn't fleshed out as well as it could be, and in turn, I just struggled to settle in. Once I did, I went along for the ride. This just doesn't do anything to stand out, so that's part of it as well. This is a police procedural film with the investigation until everyone comes together, and that's when the action picks up. I'd even say, once again, Gialli elements with Steve's investigation. Now, the cinematography here to set up the city and the locations is set in were good. The action sequences aren't great, but I can tell why. Since they aren't working with the biggest budget, they're fine. I will credit the soundtrack being good. We get a combination of synth, which I'm a sucker for, as well as jazz. That fits in line with the lead. All that's left in is filmmaking. Connors was fine with his jazz musician, who kind of gets sucked into the underworld looking for his wife. He then wants revenge. I think he has a good look and fit for the character in the movie like this. Chaplin was fine in her limited role. I do see that this was her last acting job as well. Lodori was good as his main police detective we follow. I love how tenacious he is to get justice for what's happened. Hill was good as our drug lord. Lemaire, Romay, Long, Mayans, and the rest of the cast were fine and around the soft what was needed. In conclusion, this is an interesting film from Franco's filmography. This is listed as an action thriller, but we don't get a lot of that former until late. This is more of a police procedural with Gialli mixed in for the investigation. There is a pacing issue. This just takes too long to settle in. I thought the bright spot was the acting. It was solid for what we was needed. I'd also say that the cinematography was good in setting up the locations. My issue, though, is that it just has a lack of budget, which hurts here. What we focus on isn't as interesting. I'd recommend this to fans of Franco who are out to see his filmography. Those looking for action films, I'd pass on this one because there's better ones out there on... Less you like schlock, then give this a go with friends and drinks for sure. But my rating here for Downtown Heat is going to be a 4 out of 10. Now this one, I was looking at it earlier as it does seem to be streaming on Full Moon's Prime Video channel. You can also watch this on Tubi or you can rent it on Prime Video for $2.99 or you can buy it there as well. Or you can also pick up this collection here for the Blu-ray. 
Die Eroberung meines Landes war leicht, weil ich mich nicht aushalten konnte. Sein Mund auf meinen Mund angegriffen. Es war so heiß, es war so süß. Willkommen zurück, mein schöner Soldat. Ich brauch deine Küsse, deine süße Küsse, um in die hilflose Front zu gehen. Bitte versteh mich, vergiss mich niemals. Ich will ohne dich nicht leben. Alle zusammen! in love with her? More than ever. Now is the time, perhaps. Why? Has she broken with Carl? Who knows? Maybe he broke with her. As much as I know, he hasn't write, written to her in ages. Ever, in fact. Maybe he's a war casualty. Or a deserter. <sighs> you don't like him very much, do you? <laughs> How did you guess? <laughs> Ein, zwei, drei, mein Herz wartet nur auf dich. Ich brauch dein Küsse, dein süße Küsse, um in die hilflose Front zu gehen. Bitte verstehe mich, vergiss mich niemals. Ich will ohne dich nicht leben. And up next for you on this episode, I have Night of the Eagles. This goes by the original title of La Chute des Angels. This is from 1989. It was directed by Jesus Franco. And then he also came up with the story and co-wrote this with George's Freundland. Uh, like they also might have been – he might have been accredited for the adaptation. This stars Christopher Lee, Ramon Estevez, and Mark Hamill while also featuring Alexandra Ehrlich – Daniel Grimm, Carol Keeper, Craig Hill, Teresa Gimpera, Terry Valley, Carlos Coroga, Lawrence Lemaire, Robert Ground, Antonio Mayans, Jacques Potin, Steph Angler, Pierre Sheramantif, Jan DeSellis, and Christine Rosens. This is a drama war film that is a co-production between France and Belgium. Currently sitting on a 4.5 on IMDb and not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say probably like a two to a three-star movie over there. And our synopsis, in World War II, Germany, two young men, one of which is an ardent Nazi and the other is a secret anti-Nazi, are in love with the same woman. She is the daughter of a wealthy banker. The two join the army and the young woman becomes a nightclub singer. Eventually she joins the army as well to entertain the troops, but circumstances soon result in her entire world being changed. So let me read the back here. Jess Franco's classic story of love and war, uncut and remastered. 
From the studio that brought you Zombie Lake and Panther Squad and the director of Female Vampire and Barbed Wire Dolls comes Franco's Night of the Eagles, a stark World War II drama starring iconic genre actors Christopher Lee, horror of Dracula and the Bloody Judge, and Mark Hamill from Star Wars. Lee plays Strauss, a wealthy German businessman whose comely, lovely daughter Lillian, portrayed by Ehrlich, is soon torn between two lovers of Peter, portrayed by Hamill, and and Carl, portrayed by Estevez, brother of Charlie Sheen and Emilio. Unable to choose between her paramours, Lillian's life changes forever when her bows are stripped off to fight on the front lines and she's forced to take a job, a dance hall singer in a sordid nightclub. When her country and people are torn to pieces by the ravages of war and her once prosperous father relegated to poverty and despair, Lillian must make unthinkable choices in the name of survival. A sober, sophisticated, and far less exploitative Latter-day Offering from Franco, Night of the Eagles, also released as Fall of the Eagles and War Song, is one of Eurocine's most ambitious pictures made shortly after the studio's perverse 1988 Franco masterpiece Faceless and boasts handsome production design, authentic costumes, bloody battles, and a magnetic supporting performance by Lee as a man who helplessly watches his dreams unravel. Full Moon is proud to present this underrated, unique Franco film on Blu-ray for the first time in America, totally uncut and remastered from the original 35 camera negative. So, this is one that I got to see thanks to Laura from Scandal Coactive. This is part of the Eurocine Collection Volume 1 that I got as a screener. I knew coming in this was a movie that was directed by Franco. What surprised me was seeing that it starred Lee, who I'm a big fan of, as well as Luke Skywalker himself in Hamill. It wasn't until settling in that I realized this also featured, as I said, Sheen and Emilio's brother, Ramon Estevez, as I also knew that this featured Nazis as well, but I actually was came into this one fairly blind. What i also say is that synopsis that we got was pretty good. I just want to add fleshing out the characters a bit more, which the extended one that I did also does that. But we started a party where we have Lillian Strauss portrayed by Ehrlich, whose daughter is dancing with Carl Holbach. Now, he is a composer and in love with her. He's also the anti-Nazi. We see Peter Freundlich enter the party, who is in love with Lillian as well. At the time of this, Germany has invaded Poland. Peter is in the military and home on leave. Walter, who is portrayed by Lee, who is the wealthy banker and father to Lillian, comes home. His daughter and Carl go off so he can play her a song that he wrote for her. They're interrupted, though. We then see a different conversations that Carl is against the war. He gets drafted, though. Lillian tries to get her father into letting him out, but he doesn't care for the young man, so he doesn't want to use his influence for that. He also knows that his daughter gets infatuated regularly. Carl goes off to the front in Africa. He writes to Lillian regularly, but she doesn't get any of his letters. She believes that he isn't writing to her. Lillian then also wants to do her part for the war effort. She sings to soldiers who are injured. This leads to going to the nightclub where she becomes popular. This upsets her father because he feels she's dressed too provocatively. This leads to a series of events where Lillian has interactions with her suitors, her father, and even a commanding officer of Anton portrayed by Daniel Grimm where we see how war changes not only Germany, but all those involved. So that's only my recap and introduction to the characters. What is interesting here is that I learned from reading trivia that this movie was rushed into production. It sounds like an earlier movie, Countdown to Esmeralda Bay, was successful, so they wanted to try to capitalize here. This film was also doomed the relationship between Eurocine and Franco, as he left during post-production. Now, I haven't seen Esmeralda Bay yet. It is part of the set. What I will say is that I wasn't expecting the type of movie that we got here. So this is an interesting character study of our leads. The problem is that I run into is I think the story should be condensed slightly because this follows Walter, Carl, Peter, and Lillian, but we don't afford all of them enough time to fully flesh things out. This causes characters to be left for long stretches, and it bogs down the pacing for me too much. 
That's not to say this is bad. I was quite intrigued with the story that we are exploring here. What I will say is that we also have filler here of real documentary footage from World War II. We are seeing like Adolf Hitler's speeches as well as soldiers marching in. The closer we get to the end of the war, we also see the effects it had on Germany. This even is showing that lies are being told to the general German people so that way they thought they were winning when in fact things were falling apart. This is seen through Walter. He's too old to serve, but I also get the idea that he didn't serve in World War I either. He's rich. I bet he avoided it through his influence. He dislikes Carl, even though his daughter should be with someone who has more money and influence like he does. That's what he believes. We see, though, that how hard he is on losing his daughter as the story progresses. Lee does a good job here. He's a professional as well. My problem is that his character stem, where it ends up going in the end, doesn't fit the redemption story that we're getting as this concludes. I then want to look at the suitors. We have Peter, who is already a soldier, and Carl gets drafted. Both end up serving similar positions in that they're leading others. I get the idea for the latter that his time serving has deprogrammed him as a human. He also still doesn't believe in the Nazi cause from what I get, but cares enough about the people that he serves with. That was something I could appreciate. Both seem to also experience the idea that life is too short and we shouldn't be taking things for granted that we have. If anything here, I thought Hamill was underutilized. Estevez was good, and I like this love triangle with Lillian. I'm just not sure if it works out as well as I'd like. That'll take me then to this character of Lillian. Ehrlich does great at being a young naive in the beginning. Now, she is a Nazi, and that's due to her upbringing. What is interesting here, though, is that she sees how the war changes her. She wants to do her part, which in the beginning is singing to boost morale. When she joins the military, her train's attacked. This causes her to see how difficult life is. Now, she grew up rich, and this is the first time of having that. She makes hard decisions that make her grow, and I do like that she has to choose between Peter and Carl. She also meets Dimitri, who is portrayed by Kiroga, and she grows quite fond of him. There's also, she needs to make up for things that she did to upset her father, but this story arc falls short with what we get in the end. So I will say that this is well made, thought the cinematography was good in capturing where it's set. It feels like her characters are in different places, like in the front in northern Africa or the eastern one in Europe, Russia. It also feels hot or cold, depending. Some of this looks cheap, but I'm also not going to hold that against this. I did like the documentary footage added in, even though it does feel like filler. But I think that this is more of Franco conveying the story of what is happening surrounding these events, so I get it. It just feels like they're packing in too much of a story, and it causes it to bog down. I think that things should be trim and others should be fleshed out to work better overall. I was actually going to do a little bit of trivia that I was reading near the end of watching this that I found to be interesting. But after the successful productions of Dark Mission Evil Flowers and Countdown to Asmeralda Bay, both directed by Franco, Eurocine and its boss, Marius Lesur, decided to beat the iron while it was hot in producing this, but this intended to be a blockbuster but ended up being a bitter failure, undermined by post-production problems which are unusable direct sound recordings and handicapped by the withdrawal of the U.S. buyer. The film did not see a VHS release in France until the mid-90s. Producers Lasor and his brother Daniel held director Franco responsible for the failure due to abandoning the ship during post-production. This had troubled production, though, and led to the fall of Eurocine as it was responsible for a lasting quarrel between Franco and the producers. Hamill and Lee both end up appearing in the Star Wars franchise. I'm not going to go through all that because it doesn't really add anything, but I did want to end this out by saying that this might be one of the best technically made Franco films that I've seen. I was invested to see where this would take us. I didn't even say that this is an action war element, so those were good. 
I'm just not sure if this new fully what I wanted to do. This is a solid one if you want a period piece drama that is a bit of an action war mixed in. Definitely an interesting change of pace from some of the Franco stuff that I've seen, especially if you're out to see his full filmography. So my rating here for Night of the Eagles is going to be a 6 out of 10. Now for this one here, I believe you can pick up this box set. I'm actually not seeing this one streaming. I'm surprised that it's not on the Full Moon channel. It might be over there, but actually, nope. I, it is on the Full Moon Prime channel. You can also watch this on Tubi. You can also rent this on Prime for $2.99 if you want to do it there. You can also buy it there, I'm assuming, as well. Or I'd recommend just picking up this box set if you are interested. Our aim is clean space. We are an anti-pollution commander. If you don't cancel your poisonous space program, your astronaut will remain spinning up there forever. Sybil Danning is the Panther. Frank is Jack Taylor. Time in the morning. Uh, you here for the sun and the fun? No, I'm here for the action. Wrong game. I play football. Oh, you do? What position? What else? Kicker. Be back in a minute. Uh huh. What next? Danning is the panther, and... This is the panther squad. And this is Frank, our man in Guasora. Claims he works for the console. Say hello to Frank. Hello to Frank! James Bond, if you fear Rambo, you'll love those exciting Panther Girls. There is nothing and no one to stop me now. Surrender or I'll blow your Nikes off. Make friends with them, those girls of the Panther Squad. Right here, soon.
And then up next, I have The Panther Squad. This is from 1984. This is directed by Pierre Chevalier, and he went by another name, actually. Let me see if it's actually on this here. What did they have him credited as? I think it was something Knight, Peter Knight. And then this was written between George Friedland, Leona Cook, and Oliver Mathot. This stars Sybil Danning, Jack Taylor, Karen Schubert, along with Jean-René Gossart, François Bocci, Donna Cross, Karen Brussels, Donald O'Brien, Arch Taylor, Roger Barton, John Rounds, Antonio Mayans. He was credited, though, as Robert Foster. This is also featuring Shirley Knight, Katja Benert, Analia Ivars, Ori Radanau, and Virginia Svensson. This is an action-adventure crime sci-fi film that is a co-production between France, Belgium, and Spain. Currently sitting on a 3.2 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being... A squad of female mercenaries take an organization called Space Clean, which is dedicated to stopping space exploration. Another one, I'll be honest, I didn't know about until getting this Eurocine Volume 1 collection for review, thanks to Laura from Scandal Collective. Now, this is one that intrigued me, though, because I saw it featured Sybil Danning. She's an actress that I know from The Howling 2. I also know that she appeared in, like, Rob Zombie's Halloween, V, and some other things from back in the day, so I was intrigued to see what we would be getting here. So let me read the back real quick of this Blu-ray. What do you get when legendary exploitation studio Eurocine enlists the arresting presence of Amazonian cult movie goddess Sybil Danning to kick some international terrorist tush? Why Panther Squad, of course. The coolest, craziest trash action movie of the 1980s. The blonde buxom Danning of Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, and Hercules. Stars as Leona, a.k.a. the Panther, a hotter-than-Hades heroine, who packs a punch, looks lethal, poured into a barely-there leather outfit. When a famous astronaut is held captive by a group of murderous environmental extremists, world leaders turn to the Panther Squad, a group of vicious and viciously sexy female mercenaries to search, rescue, and destroy. Will they succeed? Naturally, and they look sexy doing so. Directing under his pseudonym, Peter Knight, French genre movie machine Chevalier, Helms this off-the-wall opus, which also stars the immortal Jack Taylor from Female Vampire, Karen Schubert from Emmanuel Around the World, and Donald O'Brien's Zombie Holocaust. But all eyes are on Sybil, the greatest special effect uh, in busty B-movie history. Full Moon is excited to be bringing this rarely seen Euro Cine gem back from the 80s oblivion with a crisp new remastered HD transfer. Prime your pistols and join the Panther as she punishes any and all who dare stand in her way. So we start this off seeing a woman doing target practice, some women doing target practice in a shooting range. This is done with the opening credits and the theme. We then shift over to learning that the world has now joined into a order called Noon or New Organization of Nations, outside of just a few smaller ones here and there. The reason is pooling resources together for space exploration. We see the president, portrayed by Roger Darton, as he is relaying this information. There's a problem, though. An eco-terrorist group, Clean Space, has hijacked the spacecraft. We see that Noon tries to regain control, but they can't. There is something on Earth that is preventing making contact. They also are scrambling to send up other pilots to regain control, but this other pilot is kidnapped. It is decided that a small group needs to be called in. They're led by Leona, a.k.a. the Panther, as I was saying, Danning. Now, she contacts Frank Brabble, portrayed by Taylor. He's supposed to be a great special agent, but he's a drunk. We see that Leona doesn't drink so she can keep her wits about her. 
She brings in her unit made up of Bochi, Cross, Brussels, Ivars, and Svensson. They're all women, and they use it to their advantage. Their mission leads them to a compound that houses Barbara, portrayed by, I believe, Schubert. The leader of Clean Space is played by Gossart, and then a local general of Carlos, portrayed by Mayans. This elite team is risking their lives to save the hostage and regain control of the spacecraft before it is too late. So let's leave my recap and introduction to the characters. There's not much of the story here, and it feels like it's borrowing from other action movies at the time. I'm not as versed when it, this movie came out, but I can't imagine this did it first. And uh, something that was interesting, though, is that our villains have a good point. They just do it in a way that isn't good. They don't want humanity to explore space. They want to keep it clean. With environmental issues we're having today, this is relevant. So where I'm going to start delving deeper is that I love this feminist approach to what we have here. And actually, I got to watch the commentary here where Danine is – I'll get into a little bit more of that. But she was talking about at this time there wasn't a lot of female leads in these type of movies. But we have an all-women squad of commandos. They're led by Danine and then they're also beautiful. This is also sexist with the outfits they're wearing. Having them wear bikinis at one point as a distraction makes sense. When they're infiltrating an enemy base in heels and barely any clothes, it isn't practical. Now, I've not seen much of them, but it feels like an Andy Sedaris film without the nudity. It also feels like they need the latter, so that's what they tried to do. I think that this next expat that I'm going to go into would be the filmmaking. This Blu-ray looked great. I'll credit the cleanup here. I'd say the cinematography is fine. Setting up the locations are good. We do have some filler here with the documentary footage edited in. I get why they're using it. It just doesn't make sense to show a traditional rocket and then cut to space where we have something futuristic. The action scenes aren't great, but we can see these people aren't stunt people by trade, and it's limited to what we get there. The stakes aren't there either. I do have a soft spot for the soundtrack. It is so 80s from the theme song to the other ones that were selected. This is a low-budget action film, so you can kind of feel how it limits what they're doing. All that's left then is acting. I love seeing Danning here as she's gorgeous. The problem is that she doesn't have a lot to work with. Her fight scenes are stiff. The draw here is just seeing her in this leather outfit. Her crew isn't much better. I'll say they're good looking and we see them wearing very little. The best performer here though is Taylor. He's hilarious as his drunk secret agent. I thought that Schubert, Gosser, Mayans, and the rest of the villains were fine. The acting here isn't good. Part of this is a language barrier. This just isn't working with a large budget. So, I mean, take that into account. So I've also given this a second watch with a commentary on. This featured Danning chatting with a gentleman. He did say something about be- he was calling from Toronto or somewhere there in Canada. He was hard to hear, but Danning, on the other hand, was in a studio in Los Angeles, and she sounds crisp. What I'll say is that listening to her made me appreciate this movie more than I did originally. She talks about her career, different things that she's done, and how her time working on this film was behind the scenes. She does give some insight to her co-stars and the locations as it was shot. I rather enjoyed hearing this and the information that she provided. Now, there are certain things where she makes this out to be better than what it was, but you know I can't really fault her there. I will say that as well, the Blu-ray here had, some, had the trailer for this one as well as some other trailers. It's kind of bare bones outside of that. So what I'll say is in conclusion, this is a fun action film. It's not good, though. I do like to say that, but the story is generic. There isn't much in the way of tension, as I'm not worried about the characters. Part of that is we don't really get to know any of them outside of, like, Leona or Frank. This is a vehicle to show off Danny and her body. The filmmaking is fine, but it's limited by its budget. There are things that aren't matching up. Now, the action scenes are boring. This just feels like the movie needed nudity to give it a draw. Not one that I can recommend unless you want to, you know, mostly ignore this while having drinks with friends. This is a fun movie. I will say that. So my rating after the second watch is now going to be a 3.5 out of 10. Now, this one is shown on Tubi, or you can also buy this box set, which I recommend. The movies aren't great, but there's just something interesting about, you know, having these all compiled here together. 
Esmeralda Bay, der heldenmütige Kampf eines Volkes um seine Freiheit. von Puerto Santo. Dies ist meine letzte Botschaft an euch, als Präsident unseres stolzen Landes. In den letzten 15 Monaten habe ich verantwortungsvoll das Schicksal des mir anvertrauten geliebten Vaterlandes gelenkt. Ermächtigt durch das überwältigende Mandat, das sie mir bei unseren letzten Wahlen angetragen haben. Ich habe mit all meiner Kraft daran gearbeitet und von ganzem Herzen. Terroristen, die extremen Linken. Erstens, es ist verboten, sich in Gruppen von mehr als sechs Personen zu versammeln, ohne eine entsprechende Sondergenehmigung. Drittens, es ist verboten, Feuerwaffen oder andere Hieb- und Stichwaffen bei sich zu führen, ohne eine von der Militärbehörde ausgestellte Lizenz. zugesichert, dass ihre fünfte Flotte in unseren Hoheitsgewässern bereitsteht, um uns zu helfen. Uns zu helfen? Die Frage ist doch, wen meinen die mit uns? Sind sie sicher, die meinen sie und mich? Das bedeutet, Ramos ist unser Mann. Also ich möchte, dass sie wieder runterfahren und treten sie endlich diesem verdammten Trottel in den Hintern. Und er muss uns endlich offiziell bitten, einzugreifen. Und es ist mir scheißegal, wie sie das hinkriegen, verstanden? Nein! Ich, General Monche, werde meinen Kampftruppen den Befehl geben, diese gottverdammten Marxisten auszurotten, bis keiner mehr übrig ist. Dieser Film basiert auf knallharten Tatsachen. Ein Kampf zwischen Gefühl und Gewalt. Ein Kampf zwischen Liebe und Hass. Überzeugung und Korruption. Der heldenmütige Kampf eines Volkes um seine Freiheit. Robert Foster, Fernando Ray, Silvia Tortosa Davis und George Kennedy, mit Terry Walle und zum ersten Mal Ramon Sheen. Esmeralda Bay. Leidenschaft, 
Schicksal und spannende Action. Das ist Esmeralda Bay. Now, let's go to watch another one here of Countdown to Esmeralda Bay, or this also goes by Esmeralda Bay, but the original title is La Bahia Osmeralda. This is from 1990. It was directed by Jesus Franco, who also co-wrote this with Daniel Lassur, H.L. Rostan. This stars Robert Forster, George Kennedy, and Fernando Rey, while also featuring Ramon Estevez, Silvia Tortosa, Craig Hill, Terry Valley, Brett Halsey, Daniel Grimm, Lena Romay, Jean-Pierre Bellamore, Antonio Mayans, Karen Well, Piper, Daniel Katz, Edgardo Hernan, Emilio Lisbona, and David Fulton. This is an action drama war film that is a co-production between Spain and France. Currently sitting on a 3.7 on IMDb and not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say about a 2, 2.5 star movie over there. With the Snots being, a priest secretly leads rebels in their struggle against the corrupt military dictatorship of Central American country of Puerto Santo, which I think is fictionalized here. So, this is one that I didn't know about until getting the Eurocine Collection Volume 1 in for review from Laura over at Scandal Coactive. I was intrigued here as I learned that this was considered to be one of the better Franco films that came out in his later run for these like action films that he was doing. Seeing that this featured Forrester, Kennedy, as well as other Franco regulars had me in as well. So let me read the back of them before I get into the movie itself. And from the fevered mind of cult director Franco comes Countdown to Esmeralda Bay, a rarely seen action-packed thriller produced by Eurocine's notorious genre film studio Eurocine, which also did like Female Vampire and Demononic. In the sweaty, politically volatile South American country of Puerto Santo, there's a battle brewing when an arms-dealing American, who is Kennedy from Cool Hand Luke, begins selling weapons to the local rebels. He stirs the ear of hot-headed General Forster, who is being credited for Jackie Brown and Alligator, and raises the blood pressure of the country's hapless president, Ray, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. As tensions rise, a priest who's had enough, Franco regular Mayans, who is in like White Cannibal Clean and Zombie Lake, takes command of the rebels and leads his people to the battle in their for their lives in Esmeralda Bay. One of the handful of now-obscure action films Franco made for Eurocine in the late 1980s, including Christopher Lee's espionage, dramas of Fall of the Eagles, and Flowers of Evil, Countdown to Esmeralda Bay is a colorful, pulse-pounding tale of revolution, a military gone mad, a government out of control, and the grafters who profit from the chaos. Led by a first-rate international cast, this would include... Halsey, Estevez, and Franco's muse and regular star Romain as Ray's mistress. Countdown to Esmeralda Bay is an essential film for Franco completionists. Full Moon is thrilled to bring this obscure action film to fans, totally remastered from the original camera negative. So then, we start this off as we have a boat approaching the shore. Interestingly, I believe that the captain is Franco himself. There is a shipment of weapons aboard. We get a double cross here, though. The group that takes weapons is not who they were meant for, it's a group of guerrillas. Delving deeper here, we have Wilson, portrayed by Kennedy, is bringing in the weapons. He's that arms dealer. He's supposed to be supplying the military with him. At least that's what I feel like I understood here. We see him at a party for his daughter, Anita, portrayed by Valley. His wife is Linda, portrayed by Tortosa. And she's late showing up. She's working with the other side and helping to facilitate the theft. Wilson doesn't want to believe it, though. So we have a lot of moving parts here. We have Colonel Madero, portrayed by Foster who is controlling the government through the president of Ramos, portrayed by Ray. Madero is working with a United States agent in Jonathan Perry, portrayed by Hill. We see that Jonathan is here to prevent the spread of communism. 
The movie also introduces us to the gorillas who are led by Luis, portrayed by Halsey. His son is Andreas, portrayed by Estevez, and he's secretly dating Anita. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the story and the characters. I'll get deeper into some of the stuff with my analysis, but where I want to start is that this works and hurts in that there are so many sides of these characters and where they end up falling. Part of that, I believe, is by design. A character I didn't even bring up is the priest portrayed by Mayans, who I didn't even realize until settling in to write this review was breeding the rebels. I'm not even sure who the communists in the story are or if that was something the Americans were using as a scare tactic as a reason to be here. Now that I've gotten that all the way, I was sucked into this movie. There are so many moving parts I said, and to be honest, I dug that. We have characters who are on one side until they need to shift to work with another, and that worked as well. This feels like a realistic look at U.S. foreign policy in the late 80s and early 90s. We would, you know, back corrupt South American governments to instill leaders who are sympathetic to U.S. interests. President Ramos is that guy until we see the chance with, you know, bringing back General Maho. There's even a scene where Jonathan talks to an official outside of the White House, and he alludes to what is being told to the boss. They even reference what happened with Contras in Nicaragua. I thought this was managed well. Sticking with this, we see the decisions that characters make to keep power. Madero tells Ramos that he can't resign until he tells him to. The former knows the president is a patsy under his control. Then there's General Maho, who gains leverage again. Oddly, this general was a military dictator previously in, Swen- in Puerto Santo. Wilson is willing to shift sides and then flee when business goes sour. Andreas and the other gorillas are stealing from him until they see that Madero is the villain here. Linda is sleeping with the Madero and helping him with the thefts. I could be wrong in some of the things that I thought here, but the story was so deep that it's much deeper than what you'd usually get from Franco, especially in this era in his career. Let me then go over to the acting, which helps us for sure. We have two great actors, Enforcer and Kennedy. We get more of the latter early on, and then as this goes, we kind of shift away and see that Forster is the true villain here. Both have good performances. I liked Ray and his role, especially with the reveal late. Estevez, Tortosta, Hill, Halsey, Valley, Daniel Grimm, Mayans, Romay, and the rest of the cast were solid for what was needed. I love how everyone shifts as this feels like a game of chess. Each action causes a reaction in who you can trust. All that's left to just filmmaking. Now, I'll be honest, they didn't have the largest budget here. We see that with the effects. There are minor issues with gun stuff, and I'm not even going to hold that against this movie. I mean, like, when they're firing things. I thought the action scenes were fine. The limited budget hinders those as well. But the story helps carry this, though, when that stuff is lacking. This is shot well, so credit to the cinematography, and the soundtrack also favorable was needed. I do love some of the settings here, but I've noticed at least two other movies, like The Panther Squad and... General Mengele is literally using these same exact sets, so credit to this studio for just having these places to use and then just keep coming back to them, because they look great, so there's that. Now to end this out, this isn't a great movie. I thought this was a better action war film that brings drama. The last bit here helped by the acting. One of the better casts that I've seen in a Franco film with the likes of Forster and Kennedy. The cast around them are good. This is one of the better written ones as well. I love the commentary and story elements that are used to tell this. The budget hinders this with the action sequences, but not enough to ruin it. If you want to delve into Franco's later career with these types of films, I'd start here. I enjoyed this one and would recommend it if what I've said piques your interest. So I see you can stream this on the Full Moon Prime Video channel. This is also on Tubi. You can also rent this on Prime Video for $4.99, or I'd recommend picking up this box set just because the movies aren't necessarily great here, but I did have a lot of fun. So... To end this out then, my rating for Countdown to Esmeralda Bay, a.k.a. Esmeralda Bay, is going to be a 6 out of 10. Stop! Stop or I'll shoot!
on their hands and blood on their minds. Mania! I regret this incident. I truly do. Let's forget it. Let's have a good time. Let's dance. Bo Svensson. I told you once before. You leave my wife alone. Please, stop it. Chuck Connors. I'm going to call the police. And Robert Ginty in Mania. Some steal, others rob. They capture women. review here for this bonus episode is going to be Maniac Killer. This is from 1987, directed by Andrea Bianchi. Now, this is written between George Friedland, Mersu Lassur, and H.L. Rostein. This stars Bo Svensson, Chuck Connors, and Robert Ginty, while also featuring Suzanne Andrews, Stanley Kapoor, Dora Dahl, Henry Lambert, or Lambert, probably it's Henry Lambert. Oliver Motot, Paulina Andrano, Francois Granzi, Robert Ground, Jesse Joe Walsh, Jean-Luc Bertin, Isabelle Rochard, and Jean-René Gossart. This is a horror film that is from France. It is currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being... A murderous cult kidnaps French prostitutes and tortures them to death to purify them in their evil ways. The local pimp set out after them, as does a man whose girlfriend was kidnapped and may still be alive. So this is one that I actually have heard through a podcast before, you know, settling down to watch this. Guessing it's probably Mr. Parker since it seems like a movie he would have checked out. I got this in for review from Laura from Scandal Coactive as part of the Eurocine Volume 1 box set. This was one that I saw featured Svensson and Connors, who are both actors that I've heard of. I just haven't seen a lot of their works. I was excited knowing that this fell into the horror genre as well, as a lot of these from this box set do not. So actually, let me go ahead and read the back before I get into the movie itself. A malevolent religious cult stalks a French village, kidnapping prostitutes and subjecting them to unimaginable torments under the guise of saving their souls. When a young man's girlfriend is taken by the sect, he teams up with a mob of angry pimps to track down the maniacal, holy rolling killers and put an end to their bloody mission once and for all. 
a tense, stylish thriller from the legendary French studio that brought you Zombie Lake and Panther Squad, and directed by the man who was the notorious person behind Burial Ground, Maniac Killer stars exploitation movie heavyweights Svensson from Walking Tall Part 2, Ginty from The Exterminator, and Connors from Tourist Trap. Full Moon is excited to be presenting this obscure shocker, totally uncut and remastered from the best available materials found in the Eurocine vaults. So then, it's actually a pretty good way to kind of describe this. I don't know if it's as exciting as they're getting on, but we start this off, what I thought was a house party, but it's revealed later to be a nightclub. A couple comes out. There's a woman who is with Manfred Gray, portrayed by Ground, and they get into a tiff where he hits her and goes back inside. She walks, or she starts to walk home. There is someone following her. They put a cloth over her face, knocking her out. She wakes up chained in a dungeon. This is the cult in the synopsis that is out to cleanse her that has taken her. It is from here that we meet some of the moving parts that will come together. There's a mailman who meets his group of friends at a diner. They don't trust a local doctor, a professor Roger Osborne, portrayed by Connors. He is doing experiments to... So they think that he kidnapped the missing woman. Roger lives in an isolated home with Doreen, portrayed by Dahl. Roger enlists the aid of a deaf-mute young man who has mental issues. His name is Matthew, portrayed by Grenzi. He collects animals for the doctor, and this draws the attention of Countess Silvano, portrayed by Adrian. She believes he's a poacher, so she chases him. The Countess is married to the character played by Svensson, who is Count Silvano. We see an interesting run-in at a party where she has a lover, and the Count kicks the guy out. So there's also this leader of this cult. There is... I'm given this information because this doesn't do much to hide it. There is Gorond, I think that's how you'd probably say that, who is portrayed by Ginty, who is working with Lysa, portrayed by Andrews, and Sam, portrayed by Kempau. They kidnap young women. This draws the attention of the police and Manny's crew. Gondrond has more pull than we realize, plus he has certain protections that help him as well. So then. That is where I'll leave my recap introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that I recognize our director of Bianchi since I've seen Strip Nude for, for Your Killer. I've also had another one of his movies on my list for a while in Burial Ground. I just haven't watched it yet. I also know that he took over for Jess Franco for Angel of Death, which is in this box set that I've already covered on this podcast. I'm giving this information knowing that this would be sleazy, or at least I thought it could be. So then let me get into what I liked from here. We are having this cult that is kidnapping prostitutes to cleanse them of their sins. And I thought that was a good idea. My problem is that they think these women are possessed by the devil while they're wearing robes that are cult-like. They look like they're worshipping Satan. They're also using a staff with a serpent on it, which seems to fall in line there. These are good elements. I just think that they didn't know what they truly wanted to do here, so this feels rushed. Another good aspect for me is having Roger doing experiments in this town so the regular townspeople don't trust him. This feels like something you would take from old world mad scientist stories like Frankenstein. His experiments leave blood, so I did like when the police officer in charge, the major domo portrayed by Lambert, follows up a lead. It also makes sense that the henchman of Goron would throw suspicion his way as well. It doesn't help that Roger flees when they want to take him in, so this feels like it's borrowing from a Giallo films by needing him to clear his name. There's also the subplot with Matthew. I understood what they're trying to do here. He's a simple man. The way he his like brain works, he doesn't make the same connections how we have learned to like read, write, or just comprehend speech. That doesn't mean he isn't capable. A different approach is needed. Using the computer to help him was interesting. The problem that it needs too much screen time to make it work. There's also some leaps in logic to not linger longer than what was already there. 
that was another thing that I kind of had an issue with. What they use this for is fine in the grand scheme of the story. It just doesn't work with how they wanted for me. So I'll finish out these thoughts with filmmaking. I do think that the cinematography was good. It doesn't do a whole lot to stand out. This being cleaned up for Blu-ray looks great. I'll shift over to the effects, and they're fine. We don't get a lot of them. This is working with a lower budget, so they need to hide things. I'll credit this, the framing and editing here. We do get to see some nudity, which I do appreciate. The problem is that this movie feels rushed. There are good story elements. It just jumps through things, and we don't flesh it out in a way that feels complete. That was a gripe that I have in the end. Let me then finish this out with the acting. I thought the roles by Svensson and Connors were solid. These are a couple guys collecting paychecks, but it doesn't feel like they phoned it in, though, so that helps. Ginty was solid in his role. I think we needed a bit more for this one to be fleshed out for it to work a little bit better. Dahl and Lambert were fine. No one necessarily stands out here, but the acting works for a movie like this. Don't expect too much, though. So in conclusion, we have some good elements here. thought the concept of the story was one that was interesting, but I don't think they thought it out enough. They are supposed to be cleansing these prostitutes from being possessed by Satan, but they look like they're the cult that would be worshipping him. We get concepts that I think could work. We just don't linger on them enough. It also doesn't have enough time for this all to come together. The acting is solid. Svensson and Connors are the draw. The rest of them work what was needed. I'd say this is made well enough. It knows that it has a budget, so they're trying to hide things that they need to. There's some untapped potential here as this could work better if it's remade properly. I struggle with my attention, though, as this isn't a good movie that I'm basing itself on a sleazy concept like this as it doesn't feel like it goes sleazy enough where it really kind of needed to. So my rating here for Maniac Killer is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. This one you can stream on Tubi if you're interested. You can also rent this on Prime Video for $2.99. Or like I said, I keep saying here, I'd recommend also buying this box set if some of this stuff sounds interesting to you. So that's all I have here for mini reviews for you. It's been a longer episode than I'm usually kind of used to, but kind of glad I got to run through all these and get to check them out and everything like that. So I'm not going to do my normal outro and everything like that. So what I will say in closing is whatever you do today, hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>